Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is Dr. Genevieve Gunther. Genevieve, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me on. Do you have a nickname instead of having to say Genevieve every time? Uh, my closest friends call me Vive. Vive. Oh, interesting. Okay. I'll try to remember that during the show. I may slip up. So for the listeners, Dr. Vive Gunther is a scholar and author. She is affiliate faculty at the Tishman Environment and Design Center at the New School in New York and is founder and director of End Climate Silence, an activist organization helping news media cover the climate crisis with the urgency it deserves. So what I found interesting about your career, and I've been following you on Twitter for a while, is that you are not a climate scientist, even though you're a PhD in English Lit, but you are skilled in the communication and storytelling about climate science, and you've started this website. So I want to explore that with you. It's a fascinating career, and I'm very appreciative of what you've done and how you've evolved. Tell me about your earliest aspirations and how you got interested in English for starters, and then we'll follow the story from there. Well, um, in my senior year at Columbia University, I took a two-semester-long course in Shakespeare, and it completely changed my life. I had no idea how wondrously one person could represent all of life, and I sort of had this feeling like I wanted to dedicate my life to keeping him alive and introducing him to new generations of readers. Because, of course, you know, language from 400 years ago is not quite as accessible to us as it could be anymore. All of the jokes have no context. Um, So I felt like there was a real calling for me in, you know, trying to sort of serve these texts and teach them to the next generation and write and think about them. And I was especially interested in Renaissance literature in general because the Renaissance had a really different idea about how literature and stories and beauty in general work on us. Um, They didn't think that stories were just sort of you know, things that you used your imagination to enjoy, they really believed that stories had these kinds of rhetorical and political effects, that they would make us desire to be certain kinds of people, they would give us ideas about what was possible, um, you know, even to the extent that some people in the Renaissance accused poets and playwrights of being magicians. So, in fact, that was... Um, what my first book was about. After college, I went on to graduate school. I got a PhD in Renaissance literature at the University of California, Berkeley. And um, then I taught Renaissance literature at the University of Rochester for five years, um, where I wrote my first book, which is about how essentially Renaissance aesthetics thought that beauty and literature were so powerful that they were nearly a form of magic and how this created a lot of complications for poets who were also, of course, Christians um, in trying to sort of um, establish the theater and uh, create poetry as a kind of new cultural production. So I wrote this book um, and I received an offer of tenure from the University of Rochester. But at the same time, I also had a child. And... um, My son was just born maybe six months before my offer of tenure, and I was really sort of agonizing about the personal situation I was in. Um, My husband was on the East Coast, but he was in New York City, 
not in Rochester. And he wasn't going to move to Rochester. And I was very, very reluctant to raise a child in a long distance marriage. And I know a lot of academics do this, but I didn't really feel capable of it. And so I decided that I would take a career hit. And I emailed um, all the English departments in downtown Manhattan and said, here are my credentials. Um, I would like to teach for you on a contract basis as an adjunct um, if you would like to hire me. And so the new school said, yes, we would like to hire you. They interviewed me and they hired me to teach Renaissance literature for them part-time, which was perfect. So I ended up staying home with my son when he was a baby um, and teaching Renaissance literature part-time. And I had this idea that I would go on to write a book about Shakespeare for a kind of general interest audience or general interest readership later on once my son had started school. But you know, as I was home with him, I started to pay much more attention to the news and I started to read more deeply into the newspaper, you know, through the science section, um, through the environment section. Mm-hmm. And I started to see, I see more... the story evolving. So cool. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this. Oh, yes. I started to read more and more articles about climate change. And, you know, of course I had seen Um, an inconvenient truth in 2007. And I thought that I understood that climate change was real, but somehow coming back to it and having it in front of my attention while I was all of a sudden caring for this newborn and that I felt just sort of overwhelmingly responsible for him. Um, And all of a sudden I had an idea of the meaning of my life that sort of extended beyond my own death into a future that I had never bothered to really imagine before. Um, I started to get really concerned about climate change and very anxious about it. What was your academic approach to climate change? By that I mean you, you read articles as an experienced researcher and PhD and academic and you digest what you can of the science. Mm-hmm. And how do, how do you wrap your head around what you've read and digested and internalize it? Not being a scientist yourself. Tell me that story. Well, I think initially I would take news reports about, um, you know, the latest climate science results or studies pretty much at face value because I don't think I really had the um, critical facility to contextualize those news reports. Um, What I did notice initially, once I started um, paying attention to the sort of political language about climate change, it seemed to me to be sort of not representing the threat um, accurately or with the kind of urgency. Yes. With the kind of urgency that I thought would be necessary in order to justify you know, political action to decarbonize our economies. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I sort of took the science and sit face value, but I started immediately to sense that our kind of political discourse, the ways we were thinking and talking about climate change in the political sphere, even especially by climate advocates, um, was inadequate. They, they focused entirely, I thought, on sort of, um, technological solutions, on, hopefulness on the idea that we can do this. And so it's just a matter of generating the political will. Um, but 
knowing that the technical solutions may or may not exist is not the same as sort of um, creating the desire for the solutions, which was sort of where my expertise was. In well, desire literary. is driven by storytelling. It's still That's storytelling. Exactly right. Storytelling is driven by language. That's exactly right. So, yeah. uh, but all of this was very amorphous in the beginning. Um, I didn't really, I, I started to feel like this was the thing that I was most concerned with, but I didn't really know what I was going to do with my concern or how I would dedicate myself to it. Um, was there a point where you started working on climate policy communication for starters? Is no, that- what ended up happening was I, um, you know, I thought about going back to school and getting another's master's degree at Columbia University. They have a program in climate and society. Mm-hmm. So I, um, you know, I thought about doing that. And to be honest, I even hired a tutor to brush up on my mathematics in case I needed to take the GRE again. Um, and I, you know, I had that on the table. And then I started taking courses in climate science on the edX platform, which is a really fantastic platform. It's, um, it's a place where universities upload college level content, um, that you can, you know, participate in and take for free. So I took two courses in climate science on the edX platform. And then I even, um, did the climate reality training that Al Gore does twice a year or maybe three times a year around the country um, to train to be an activist and sort of, you know, gives talks about climate change and try to motivate other people to take personal and political action. Um, Are there other professors at the new school that you could sort of like have lunch with and get to know? No, at this point, I was still exclusively in the literary studies department, and my colleagues were really just sort of literary, literature scholars, you know, working on, you know, Tolstoy or, you know, the romantic poets or these literary genres, which had been my sort of focus for almost, you know, 15 years through graduate school and teaching at Rochester. Um, I had no connections at all to anyone working in climate. Or did um, you want to? Well, this is what happened. Uh, in 2017, the New York Times hired an opinion columnist named Brett Stevens. And Brett Stevens was a columnist for the Wall Street Journal who was on record as calling climate scientists, you know, singularly unattractive people who presided over a <laughs> past of, you know, um, religious fanatics. Like he completely dismissed climate science. Um, and he was essentially like a blanket climate denier. And I was so shocked that the New York times, which was the very journalistic institution that had gotten me concerned about climate change to begin with. I was so shocked that the New York times hired this man that they thought that climate denial was like a legitimate political opinion in 2017 that I actually, started a petition on change.org trying to persuade them to rescind his offer, uh, rescind their offer to him. And, you know, this was, I wrote this petition maybe a few weeks before the major climate strike in Washington and before the March for Science. And I went to both of those um, marches with a stack of, of handouts Xeroxed handouts about my petition, which I handed out by myself. But by the time I was done with that, um, my petition had had 
got something like 20,000 signatures. So at that point, the campaigner for change.org called me and said, this could really take off. You need to go on Twitter to promote your petition. And I said, what's Twitter? (laughs) (laughs) What year was this? What year was this? It was 2017. So this was only three years ago. You were living in a secluded environment in academia there. Shakespeare scholar, like I wasn't sure. interested in, uh, <laughs> in social media. Um, so I went on Twitter simply to promote my petition, and there I met climate scientists. Most of the climate scientists who are really engaged in public communications are on Twitter. I met journalists who are writing about climate change. I met other climate activists. I met an entire community of people who welcomed me in so generously and gave me a community in which to do this kind of work. And then when, you know, my petition failed, and of course the New York Times did hire Brett Stevens, uh, but, you know, he changed his position on climate change, so maybe that's a kind of Pyrrhic victory of some sort. But (laughs) when he um, wrote his first column for the New York Times, um, which was about sort of, you know, the fact that there's enough uncertainty in the climate science that we can't really justify spending money on decarbonizing our economy, which is, of course, the standard climate denier argument that has been made for the past 30 years. Well, that's a well-worn trope to pull out the uncertainty card. It really was. Um, and I think that it was actually the last gasp of that argument. Um, but because I had just taken courses in climate science. And because I was like trained to hear how semantic ambiguity has these different political effects, I realized how the argument actually worked, which is that when climate scientists talk about uncertainty, they're talking about an interval or a range of possible projected outcomes. Oh, 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 which oh, oh, I want to get into you. I want to get into this in the second half of the show. This is the real meat of the show. This is fascinating stuff. Now I know why I wanted to have you on the show. This is very cool. Folks, I'm chatting with Dr. Genevieve Gunter, and we'll be right back. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI, CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up-to-date hardware and a next-generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in-country data protection requirements while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are a native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers. And pay for only what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy, maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash BGM. 
That's linode.com forward slash BGM. All new customers receive a $20 credit. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with Dr. Genevieve Gunther. Now you got me excited. Now you've got me really turned on because I knew this is where this was going. And I want you to elaborate on this incipient idea about couching the language of clients, climate science, the correct way and how we fail. Mm -hmm. Well, the uncertainty example is a good one. So, you know, when climate scientists talk about uncertainty, they're generally talking about a kind of range of possible outcomes, which they can predict with confidence. They're not saying that they don't know, or they're not sure whether something is real or not. But, you know, when the rest of us use the word uncertainty, we usually mean the state of not really knowing. Like, right. you know, we're uncertain what, what we want to have for lunch. We don't know what we want to have for lunch. What's or that old uns- saw about how it's just a theory, but there are correct right. theories and there are incorrect theories. <laughs> That's exactly right. So what happened was, you know, the organized denial propaganda machine s- decided to highlight scientific uncertainty because every time they said, or indeed even a scientist, talked about the uncertainty of the science, the vast majority of the general public heard that scientists weren't really sure whether climate change was real or not. Well, that's a byproduct of the scientist talking to the scientist. And when he says there's an uncertainty of plus or minus 5% based on my statistics, blah, 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 he's talking to the science to protect himself. He's not trying to communicate to the public. So the choice of language is crucial. I would note that... Very often, scientists in trying to communicate to the public did highlight the uncertainty because they were also very often accused of being alarmist or being political and or being hyperbolic in some way. So their natural tendency to make very limited and specific statements that they could justify um, was exaggerated by this political context created by the attacks on them. So I would argue that, in fact, scientists were kind of manipulated into themselves highlighting the uncertainty of climate science in order to speak precisely and accurately and attempt to sort of um, maintain their authority, but then unwittingly kind of reinforce this propaganda message that they weren't really sure whether the science was real. Um, You know, This is not happening so much anymore, of course, because now that we're beginning to see the dangers and the um, impacts of climate change all around us, it's not as effective a strategy to pretend that climate change might not be real and that the science doesn't really know whether it's real or not, because you just see one... I think the challenge now is translating what we see and hear and feel in the environment into the proper language. I think that's you know, absolutely the old true. Weather versus climate saw and others like that, right? Yes, and even that that old distinction is starting to break down too, because attribution science has gotten much more um, robust in the past couple of years, and now not only are we able to you know, or now are scientists not only able to say how climate change might have influenced a particular 
weather, extreme weather event, they're actually able to sometimes say to what degree even climate change has influenced this extreme weather event. So, you know, the science is growing more and more robust by so very quickly. So, you know, the deniers have changed their, their strategy. I was um, watching the news the other night and they were talking about the Bahamas. Yes. And how the Bahamas had, had uh, zero Cat 5 uh, hurricanes in the previous decade. And then in, in one year, or within a few years span, they had two Cat 5s. Dorian was one. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the other thing that um, it seems like climate change is doing to hurricanes is it's making them, of course, dump more water onto land. Um, it's making them wetter in Nobody some sense. Nobody talks about that on the news. Where's all that water coming from? It comes from the atmosphere. And why is it in the atmosphere? Because warm air holds more moisture than cold air. Precisely. It's very, it's very simple. That. No, I know. Well, that's, that is, that is my other work. Um, you know, I am now writing a book on the language of climate change, which is, you know, tells the story of these really important words like uncertainty and political and alarmist and cost and well, Before we resilience. get into the book, let's talk about the website and climate science. Right. Science. But, I, but I am also, you know, now leading this small volunteer group, which I founded in September of 2018 called End Climate Science. Silence. <laughs> I'm sorry, I did that to you. <laughs> yeah. And what we're trying to do is push the news media, you know, not necessarily to do more stories about climate change, but simply to mention climate change in the stories that they're already telling about extreme weather. And do, even, they, do they feel like they're taking a political stand when they do that? Oh, by the way, you know, a Cat 5 hurricane hit the Bahamas. And this is because of climate change. It seems like almost a uh, political punctuation that is uh, unnerving to the news media. They haven't figured out how to inform us in that area. Well, this is, that's 100% correct. I mean, what the right in general and the organized climate denial machine in particular has done over the past decades is work the refs and accuse the news media of liberal bias so many times that the news media now feels like they have to compensate by, you know, um, sort of shifting their coverage to the right as if this will make them seem all the more objective. And then, of course, you know, the Republicans have done a fantastic job of turning climate change into, quote unquote, a liberal issue. Not they have, you know, recast it not as a physical phenomenon, right, but as a kind of badge of identity politics, which is, which is mind-boggling to me. What's the political motivation to do climate science denial, climate change denial? What, what's the underlying motivation? Have you researched that? Well, I don't think there is a way to really uncover that with research. I think you have to infer from looking at the history. And it seems to me that, you know, the denial comes from Um, first, the fossil fuel industry and the industrialists who are running it, um, who want to maintain their business 
as long as they possibly can. Um, and then they partner with politicians who um, are willing to be bought by these people, but who also have a kind of predisposed, um, an ideological predisposition to wanting immediate economic growth at all costs. And you have um, to deny the authority of science in order to work that economic plan, right? Yes, this has been, this is the shock of climate change in some sense. For many years, you know, throughout the 20th century and even through the Cold War, climate, um, science and um, capitalist economics seemed to work hand in hand. And science was really kind of used to encourage the proliferation of technology and economic growth overall. But then very inconveniently, all of a sudden, science discovers this cost of the fossil fuel economy. And all of a sudden, um, you have to start denying science, which means in essence, you have to start denying the very concept of truth, of a truth of physical fact that is true and recoverable through scientific practice. And so, you know, this post-truth politics that we're now suffering through absolutely found its origin in this kind of decision that right politics made to decide that profit was more important than truth and that they were willing to attack the idea of truth through attacking science in order to continue um, the system, which has, you know, made these people just unimaginably rich and powerful. It seems to be a uniquely American phenomenon. One of our writers is, lives in London and she's a journalist. And I asked her this morning about whether there is that kind of denial in the UK. And she said, nope. Not happening here and not getting on it. The government's not going to have it. No, it's true. It's true. It seems that um, it seems to be a symptom of the American right. Although there are some elements in the British right who, especially the pro-Brexiteers, who share um, some of this outright science, science denial and certainly in Australia also. Like it seems to be it seems to be something um, that you find in economies, well, that you find in petrostates, let's put it that way. Yeah. Countries whose economies are essentially based on fossil fuel production. So we're starting to run out of time just a little bit. Uh, I want to touch on two subjects before we have to close. One is what are scientists mainly doing wrong in their communication and there are any plans to fix it? Are they aware they're their problem in communication and language, and and then lead that into the book that you're working on, the language of climate change. Well, I think that um, you know scientists need to speak as scientists, and I think that insofar as they're doing that, I think they're doing a terrific job. Um, you know, I would encourage scientists always to be aware of the sort of social context of their utterances and to be aware that words like uncertainty may signify differently to people who aren't scientists. But other than that, I think that scientists are doing a fantastic job. I think if there's one thing that they might do more, it's allow artists, writers, um, public figures, 
uh, activists, all sorts of other people to talk about climate change in these kinds of emotional and hyperbolic and indeed literary ways that might not be entirely um, precise or might be somehow compressed or vaguely exaggerated or narrativized in a kind of ten, um, slightly inaccurate way. But, you know, climate change transcends science at this point. Science was the first human discourse to discover it, and it's the best mode we have to understand it. But it transcends it at this point. It's interwoven with our economies and with our identities as human beings. So I think they just need to sort of step back a bit and allow other communicators to talk about it without jumping down their throats. But I think that, you know, since in the past, just in the past few years, I think they've, they've gotten much better at this as well. They need, they need so. to be what we call an Apple press certified, which means they have been to a class where they understand how to speak mm. and things to say and things to avoid. And, yeah. 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 Well, we all need that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like that class too. <laughs> yeah, so tell me about your book. What's, what are you thinking about it as the main themes of the book? We've talked a little oh. bit about language. Yeah. So the book is um, by telling the story of the words that have dominated our thinking and our public discussions about climate change, um, the book sort of lays out the role of language and the politics of climate change. And it argues that even the language of advocates sort of misrepresent what climate change really is and bias us against the solutions. So by analyzing the way that these words in particular do it and kind of offering a transformative vocabulary, I hope to sort of help people see the urgency of climate change, but also start to cope with their own emotions about it and start to desire the solutions more than business maybe as you'll, usual. Maybe you'll start an institute where scientists will come and take your class and learn how to <laughs> speak the language of science and climate change. Well, you know, Wouldn't it's funny, cool? after, depending on where and climate silence goes and depending on how the book does, I've actually, you know, thought about turning it into some sort of communications think tank one day, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, good luck. I hope you do that. Thank you. That's All right, nice. so one more thing. So what are some notable resources people can can utilize besides nclientsilence.com? Dot org. Org. So what are some resources that are notable besides your site that you might want to mention just real quickly? Well, I would encourage everybody, if they're going to do anything, to join the climate movement, to support groups like Sunrise Movement, the 350.org, the Climate Mobilization, This Is Zero Hour. I would encourage them to get involved with whatever campaigns those movements are mounting, I would encourage them to donate. And I would encourage them, especially the adults listening to this podcast, to join the youth climate strikers who are striking every Friday for government climate action and who still, except for these like, you know, big strikes that they organize, who are still largely alone without adult allies. We need to make this a movement that spans generations, spans 
identities, spans, economic tax brackets, we need to just come in and help. Um, so I would encourage everybody to go to the websites of those organizations and pick one and get involved in the politics of the climate movement. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Viv, thank you very much for joining me on the show. It's John, been a thank you for having me. Discussion. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. For um, info. You can always send me email at Genevieve at endclimatesilence.org, or you can follow me on Twitter, which I would also love. And my handle there is Dr. Vive, which is doctor and then V I V E, all in one word. Great, great. Well, thank you again for joining me, folks. You've been listening to Dr. Genevieve Gunther and John Marchalera on the Mac Observer's background mode. We'll see you again next week.